What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off the Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Bruce Fenton is a dedicated scholar of anomalous phenomena focused on revealing the origins of Homo sapiens. In this conversation, we discuss what anomalous phenomena is, the history of meteor impacts on Earth, why geomagnetic reversals are important, the evolution of Homo sapiens, Bruce's theory on why extraterrestrial forces came to Earth on an artificial intelligence probe, how all of this relates to CRISPR technology, and how the media and others should be encouraging scientific experimentation. I fully recognize that many of these are radical ideas. I think it's important to hear all perspectives and expand our understanding and learning. I won't do many of these types of episodes, but when I do, they'll be due to a personal curiosity, and I'll do my best to make them informative and entertaining. I really enjoyed this conversation with Bruce, and I hope you do as well. Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right, Crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal, motherfucking mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at Crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit Crypto.com. Pomp's got you always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry. Your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you got to do is go to coinmine.com. You buy a coin mine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right. You purchase it. It shows up at your doorstep. You pull it out of the box. You plug it in, connect to your Wi-Fi. Five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide, and then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just you're updating your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com, tell them Pomp set you, and thank me later. As many of you know, crypto investors store their digital assets on exchanges or in cold storage for long-term safekeeping. However, this strategy doesn't help them grow their investment holdings or build overall wealth. With the new BlockFi interest account, users can now securely store their Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. 6% is an absurdly high rate. It's the best rate in the industry. I highly suggest you go check out BlockFi.com POMP. Again, that's BlockFi.com POMP to sign up and start earning crypto today. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys, bang, bang. I am super excited to uh, record this episode. We've got uh, Bruce Fenton here with us. Um, Bruce is uh, is been spending a lot of time focused on uh, many things around human uh, origin um, and uh, extraterrestrial involvement, um, along with other uh, scientific pursuits. So thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to come on and record this, Bruce. Oh, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. I'm really glad to be here. 
For sure. So before we kind of get into uh, the fun stuff, I, I want to just start um, with your early life and your kind of your childhood and, and your background so that when we talk about some of your work today, uh, people have an understanding of the perspective that you're coming at this from. Where, where were you born? Kind of what was um, your early childhood like? Sure. I'm from a small town in the southwest of England called Stroud, which is a rural town. Um, and basically, you know, quite a backwater place, not much happens. Um, but I went to a, an English boys grammar school. I've come from that that kind of, um, I suppose, background, this middle class English background, um, product of the that system. So some of you may recognize the, the kind of the accent I have, a bit of the Queen's English tone to my voice. And um, really, I got into these kind of obscure topics, I suppose, quite young. I mean, I had a grandmother used to give me these collectible cards that there were small collectible cards that would come with her tea leaves. And in them, each one would have like a mystery, you know, like the pyramids or crystal skulls, you know, all those kind of the strange, classical, strange stuff. And I just found them, I just found them really fascinating, to be honest. And I suppose as, as time went on, you know, I began to read in those topics. And that's where it, it developed from. Got it. And, and so as you um, kind of went through school and everything, was there anything that you did um, in terms of like research or, or was it really more uh, just personal curiosity and entertainment to some degree? Yeah, I mean, at the early age, it was more of just, you know, a bit of a hobby. I suppose from probably around 20-ish, then I became a bit more serious about it as a research, you know, area um, and would, you know, get more technical books on um topics like you know ancient civilizations uh, and also some of the, the I guess psychical topics paranormal uh, all of these subjects you know obviously it's a university you know I had the extra time you know so you're not you're not really weighed down with work and family so I mean I, you know, I had the time to have this as a kind of a, a side project and also had experiences of my own I had a number of strange kind of psychical experiences you know I guess what we call sort of telepathy knowing what people's thinking including knowing people's names you know that I would meet in a club and I would tell them their name you know to total strangers so those are the kind of events of course that then intrigue you as to well if it can happen to me then it must be happening to other people there must be a valid phenomena here that's worth studying so so it wasn't just because I found it intriguing, you know, in an external way. It was also personally relevant. For sure. And, and then um, where did you go to uh, college and, and kind of what was the, uh, the, the focus of your um, um, collegiate or, or university study? I went, to, I basically studied IT actually in, um, in East Anglia, which is to the east of London, if people know the UK a little bit. It was um, Anglia Ruskin University. So I did a information, two years of an information systems degree. So I took a higher national diploma in that and went into, after that, I was working in banking and some IT roles and stuff in the city. Um, but alongside that, yeah, I maintained an interest in really all things mysterious, you know, the, the, the full gamut from. Uh, shamanic topics to of course as we've, we've covered some of the, the extraterrestrial lost civilization it really started to you know it starts to snowball you find that most of these topics they link into each other so inevitably if you if you, if you explore one of them in any depth you start to encounter all the others right so it, it becomes quite a a web of subjects for sure. And, and today, um, you know, I saw online that uh, you describe yourself as a dedicated scholar of anomalous phenomena. Um, and you're really focused on kind of the revealing the origin of Homo sapiens. But before we get into kind of that second piece, just talk to me about like what exactly is anomalous phenomena? And, and, and there's a whole kind of scientific community and, and body of work here. Uh, but from your seat, like what exactly is that work? 
Yeah, really. I mean, if we look at most or all areas of science today, you know, that within the existing popular consensus theories, you'll find anomalies, you know, these these little bits of data that don't fit the theory and that have as yet not been resolved by further research, further experiments. You know, so of course in in respect to say um, ancient history and human origins, we have a number of anomalies and that's that's partly because of a lack of data. You know, the further back you go, you know, it becomes very hard to to, to get the evidence right but but in you know physics we now see for example there's been a few um, events lately and i will probably go into with some craft that have been observed that seem to to break the laws of physics now we'd say these are anomalous because you know they suddenly stop and then they can suddenly you know they appear to be instantaneously at maximum speed again you know, that would be a, an anomaly because as we understand it craft have to slow down and speed up so again there's physics anomalies you know biological anomalies I'm interested in all these, all of these, really, to some degree, and obviously only in some areas I have special skills which allow me to resolve some of them or attempt to resolve some of them. So that's my focus: is really on anomalous science. Um, you could say the SPR, the Society for Psychical Research, you know, they deal with anomalous phenomena, and probably one of the more famous organisations that you know they'll research the paranormal and psychical type claims, you know, and they'll apply scientific rigor. To, to testing these claims to see if they can find, uh, you know, a, a real-world tangible solution for why certain things seem to happen, which we don't fully understand. For sure. And, and I think that, um, you know, for those at home who, who are unfamiliar with this, um, you know, when, when we talk about that scientific rigor and, and some of the associations and things like that, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- there's, uh, I think probably one of the larger ones is the, associ- the Association for the Sci- Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena. It's, you know, founded in the Mm -hmm. 80s, right, in the UK um, and studies everything from ghosts to crop circles, aliens, UFOs, kind of all of these things that um, I I think have entered into the mainstream culture in uh, more kind of uh, mimetic type um, or or, or comedy. Right. It's kind of like the the jokes and and, Mm -hmm. um, kind of uh, personal curiosity. But uh, no one would ever um, openly admit in a traditional professional corporate environment. uh, Hey, you know, I believe in ghosts. I believe in aliens. You know, it's kind of uh, taboo a little bit. But there's always, um, Mm -hmm. you know, some form of truth in this stuff. And and I think that, uh, you know, it's important for people to really understand that um, there's an entire community of academics, of researchers and and, uh, scientists who are uh, dedicated to studying this stuff of which you are really attacking um, kind of a a subset of that uh, work. Absolutely. And really, there should be no area of human experience or human observation, which is beyond the remit of scientific investigation. So I think it's, it's a sad fact that we ever developed this kind of, um, you know, farcical kind of joke approach to certain areas of human experience. Because, you know, if hundreds of thousands of people report seeing a ghost or report, I don't know, seeing aliens or you know, whatever it is, you know, that is a, a valid phenomena for scientific research, right? No matter what the final conclusion of that research is, even if it's that we have a mass delusion, because a mass delusion would be a fascinating discovery, right? That, that there's 100,000 people suffering from some rare brain condition that causes them to see the ghost of, you know, I know, King Henry VIII, right? That that would be an astonishing scientific conclusion, wouldn't it? 
for sure. And, and you know, look, I, I've been pretty clear with uh, with folks that you know my personal interest in um, a lot of uh, this work and, and and really kind of around this idea of intellectual life outside of Earth um, comes down to the, the idea that uh, science is supposed to be experimental. Right. There should be no sacred cows. Um, the idea of uh, forming a hypothesis, putting it through that scientific rigor uh, and being comfortable coming out on the other end uh, with whatever facts uh, and conclusions are there. Right. So, so not saying um, I, I'm going to reject science, um, but, but saying instead I, I have a. Uh, thesis that I'm willing to put through scientific rigor. And when I come out the other end, I'm open-minded as to what that conclusion can be based on those facts. Um, And I think when it comes to um, kind of, um, you know, extraterrestrial uh, intelligence and life and and, uh, the UFOs and kind of all of this stuff that I'll just call, you know, kind of outside of Earth, um, I think that uh, there's a lot of people who um, don't have that open-mindedness Right. But but as a friend recently told me, you know, Mm -hmm. look, one of the greatest scientific breakthroughs that we could have um, in our lifetime would be the discovery of intelligent life outside of Earth. Right. I mean, that 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 is a um, an inflection point in uh, both the homo sapiens on Earth, but also in um, the trajectory. Right. If all of a sudden we know that there are other people out there, we can confirm that we know where they are, um, et cetera. I, I think that it really would um, not only expand the thinking of people, but but it would change the way that we um, do things or, or, or think about things and plan, uh, which would obviously be pretty, uh, pretty serious stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it, it could rewrite the sort of software of the brain in a way that the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about the future of our planet, um, the way we go about certain areas of infrastructure would change. You know, that just knowing that we are not alone and that there is whether already or potential to connect with other intelligences, you know, yeah, I think would be an enormous rewrite for a lot of our thinking. I mean, perhaps probably the two biggest questions out there in in science and philosophy are that, you know, does any element of us survive death and are we alone in the universe? I mean, there's there's not many other questions that are on par with those, right? I mean, we all at some point will probably ask those two questions. For sure. And, and, and I think uh, there are um, – the way I see it is that both of those questions are really important. Everyone does ask them at some point. Uh, and most people have a foregone conclusion or assumption in their head. Right. So they either believe mm-hmm. that there is some afterlife or they don't. Uh, and they either believe that it's likely that there's other intelligent life or they don't. Um, but but I don't think that um, those assumptions disqualify uh, the importance of the scientific rigor to actually get confidence in a conclusion. Right. To be able to confirm, yes, there is uh, an afterlife or there is other life out there outside of Earth. Um, again, it, it produces a level of um, of confidence and kind of finite um, answers that that, again, change the behavior uh, and understanding that humans have today. Absolutely. Uh, and one of the things we know as well in the, I guess in the scientific and the tech world as well is that sometimes if you, if you know that there is something out there which is possible that you can't do yet, right? But you know, say, a competitor can do something or you see a technology 
right, which is being used in another nation. You don't have, you know, it's possible to develop it, right? So, so suddenly, if you have a team working on it, they are reinvigorated by the fact that hey, someone else can do that, then we can do that, right? So, if we know that there is intelligence out there, and we detect them, and we start to learn something about them, we find that they have, let's say, certain technology, certain knowledge of science, and we say, hey, that that's really a radical rethink of what we assumed, you know, what we thought was possible. That is going to really change how we go about developing new technologies, right? Because if we know Civilization X can create you know, such and such a machine, then we can, right? So so I, I think we're going to, to see that happen as long as we can you know, establish that there is something there, they have these technologies. That, that would really change the way we go about developing future tech and things like that as well. So it could, you know, I think it's going to have an amazing impact. And of course, I'm underlying this. We'll get to, obviously, I'm arguing that, that that is a current Sure. New world situation, right? That we have evidence that we have evidence that these kind of things are well. That there is intelligence, right? If we look at some of the the things that are happening at the moment, of course, we have recent events, you know, which suggest that technology is operating right in our in our atmosphere, which do defy some of our understandings. Now, whether they are extraterrestrial or whether they are some unknown, you know, operator. Those are going to inspire people to replicate, right? We're going to have these these tic tac things, whatever they're being called. People are going to look at those and say, "Well, hey, you know, how do we stop it? You know, immediately and then suddenly change tricks." I'm sure that's already happening. I'm sure that's you know that's been worked on probably since the first detection, right? So, if there's ways of studying other elements of that technology, now assuming it's again probably not human made then we're going to be able to, I think, you know, start to chase whoever it is that's doing this and try to do catch up, you know, start to develop some really astonishing things. Yeah. And, and what you're really talking about is it's kind of like the, uh, the Roger Bannister effect, right? That no human had ever run a four minute mile. All of a sudden, Roger Bannister runs the four minute mile. And, you know, within, you know, one or two years, it was like 20 people did. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it was just simply the belief that, hey, this is possible. Another human has done this um, kind of, you know, broke open the floodgates, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And I've heard of experiments where they've done this, where they've had teams of scientists have been given almost like, you know, a, a fake video of something to show them that it's possible and that it's changed the belief set of the, the team, right? Because it's like, well, hey, look, someone else can do it, then you can. And then they think, oh, right, yeah, we must be able to, you know, whereas beforehand they would have assumed it was impossible and they've, they've gone on to develop that. Now, I, I can't remember the specific case where I read that, but obviously, again, as you, say, you know, it does seem that you're able to to change people's thinking that way. That seeing is believing, right? That we will say it. But if you if you can see something else happening, like well, you're gonna believe it. And this is a, why we're seeing now, of course, a change in what's been called the UFO subject, that we're seeing things that now people are forced to rethink a lot of assumptions. And I mean go a little bit into that. Should we talk a little bit about the the, the recent videos go a bit into detail with that or for sure yeah so, so what, what, let's before we get there what i want to talk about uh is let's go kind of uh chronologically from uh what i'll call the beginning of time right but really what, what that is uh is um pre-human right there were um pretty well confirmed pretty well accepted uh dinosaur life on earth right and this is uh, a whole host of um, various types of creatures many of them that don't exist today uh, and the first kind of thing I want to talk about is this idea that um, there is uh, one theory that uh, is pretty well accepted that there was a meteor strike uh, into earth 
um, you know, some estimate that it was as much as 65 million years ago. Right. So, so we're talking incredibly uh, long time ago. Uh, and that meteor strike hit um, and, and a very big piece of it hit in uh, the Yucatan, which is in uh, Mexico. And when that happened, it basically uh, created such an impact that there was a bunch of fire and dust um, that, that, that was able to block the sun. Uh, from actually getting into um, um, kind of the crust of the earth, right, or actually hitting uh, earth in, in the way that we think about it. And due to that blockage of the sun, there was um, a, a drastic cooling of temperatures uh, on earth. And then that ultimately led to the extinction of dinosaurs because they just couldn't survive in that climate. Um, you know, one, just are you on the side of, hey, that is valid? Are you on some other uh, theory there, and then talk to me a little bit about the the, the science and, and the understanding around just the uh, mechanism of a meteor impacting the Earth, and kind of you know we'll use that to then get into uh, some of the other work uh, that that comes in in more recent times. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I'm definitely, I suppose, we call a a cataclysm proponent in that you know a lot of for for a long time geologists and evolutionary biologists have never keen on cataclysm as drivers in science i mean historically there was a lot of rejection of the idea that cataclysm play a huge role in in the, the story of life but we, we know today that they do we know that there's been mega events as you say like the, the dinosaurs were essentially eradicated or most of them, certainly the larger dinosaurs, and the, the remnants were forever changed. You know, we have obviously species that arise from them, but the, the large dinosaurs essentially died off. And, and the mammal age really began because of that. So without an event like that, you know, would mammals have got their foothold? You know, would we have started on the path to to humanity? Probably not. You know, we, we may have later on, maybe with the help of a different cataclysm. But Without the removal of the you know, the top dog, the dinosaurs, it's hard to see that we would have ever developed, right? So we can see the importance of these cataclysms, and you can go back further. We have others. We have like the, you know, there's the great dying. There's when the, the seas uh, no longer moved in the way they do today, so the, the oxygen levels change. We've had all these different kinds of problems with been huge die-offs, and, and those have absolutely shaped you know the the environment for us and allowed for our development so i think yeah i'm definitely i i'm on board with that these cataclysms were were not only valid and real but hugely important to our story even though they some of them occurred hundreds of millions of years ago you know that they still have shaped the world to where we are now and allowed us to become if you want you know at least for now the um the sort of top dog for sure and in in terms of the meteor uh impact um th this really is for those that ha have no um scientific understanding or haven't looked at it at all it's really just the idea that there are uh rocks or debris that are floating around in space and uh it's a collision right they, they they're simply uh they're on a trajectory that ends up intersecting with the um earth and uh, it is able to make it through uh, the atmospheric um, uh, kind of pressures and, um, and chemistry and ultimately strikes the crust of the earth, right? Is that, is that a, a fair way to kind of um, describe what's going on with those meteor impacts? 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we've got a lot of debris out there that's orbiting the sun as we are uh, at various distances. Obviously, we have the Oort cloud much further out, but we have the asteroid belt, which is nearer to us. So some of these these objects will come into the inner solar system at times. We have, of course, comets as well on larger elliptical orbits. But this is all material that's within our solar system, and it's all essentially orbiting the sun. So yeah, every now and again, the orbit of one of these objects will just cross with us or will be moved by the you know coming close to the gravity of say one of the larger planets like you know jupiter and it'll destabilize an orbit and that we'll end up with a an impact event and we know that roughly every thousand years we're supposed to get a a fairly significant strike but you know it's every hundred thousand years or so that we get you know i guess a, a really large you know maybe a mile across kind of chunk possibly coming into us. Th- those are you know obviously much more irregular the smaller chunks yeah we do you know every thousand years or so again this is an average we'll get something that will you know could take out a you know could take out a town or something you know if it if it landed in the wrong place for sure and, and so um there are some very well-known meteor strikes obviously like the uh, the one in the yucatan um but then there are ones that uh are only recently either being discovered or, or less popular um, you know, before we started recording, we were talking about uh, one that um, was discovered in uh, Antarctica, right? And it's this idea that um, these researchers from uh, Heidelberg University uh, were able to gather um, these tektites, I think is how you say it, um, and, and uh, they were able to find mm-hmm. these uh, in a whole bunch of different um, continents. Uh, but, but ultimately, there is this massive meteor that appears to have struck uh, Earth um, and, and uh, specifically in the Antarctica region that created an impact similar to that of which, um, you know, ultimately killed off the uh, the dinosaurs. Yeah, that's right. I mean, as part of my current research project, I was, for reasons we'll come to, I, I was focused on a period around 780,000 years ago. And yeah, it turns out that there was extensive widespread destruction from a number of impacts, asteroid impacts at that time. Then you've got um, at least one that hit the Americas, another one in, in Africa, another one down Oceania, Tasmania. And yeah, this really big one, which hit Antarctica, and which, you know, one of the craters from from that chunk is 200 miles by 200 miles. So I mean, people imagine the scale of that. So we're talking about a global bombardment, absolutely devastating effects that you would have had, you know, extremely powerful um, tornadoes, not tsunamis, and obviously also earthquakes. You have dust thrown up into the atmosphere, which causes cooling. Um, What they think is the impact, the effects were lessened by the fact that it was an ice age at the time. So, for example, you know, the hits that hit Antarctica obviously went down into the ice. They did melt quite a lot of you know water that rose to sea levels um but things like tsunamis are drastically reduced right by the amount of sea ice that you've got so there was there were some factors that you could say allowed life to weather this storm better than during the impact that wiped out most of the dinosaurs so we were you could say we were kind of fortunate in a way that this was happening during an ice age and not at any other period Got it. And, and so explain a little bit more this idea that the tsunamis can be reduced by uh, an increase in ice. It's just literally taking the the liquid and putting it into uh, a more kind of ice structure. And that um, means that there's less water uh, for the tsunami. Well, basically, yes. Yeah, some of the, the energy is going to be dissipated into the huge chunks of ice and the, you know, the, the fact you've got sea ice as well covering 
huge amounts of the ocean. A lot of the energy that would normally go into the wave is being is being dissipated into that ice as it as it radiates out. If you imagine this kind of this wave, obviously it's 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 connecting with ice, you know, so it's losing energy into the ice. So unlike where if you've just got open ocean, that wave moves you know, fairly freely. I mean, it's still losing energy as it goes, but not to the degree where you've got enormous stretches of ice out there and icebergs and such. So it's going to be hitting all of this solid material as it goes and dissipating energy. So in that respect, it was lucky. It wouldn't have ended up perhaps with these kind of, you know, kilometre-high waves coming inland and wiping out, you know, entire vast regions. It, it would have been significantly reduced. I mean, the, the impact on dinosaurs you would have literally had, you had like waves that were, you know, they could be a couple of kilometers high or more. I mean, I, I may be under-exaggerating it. I know that they were certainly enormous waves once they came onto land. You know, the kind of energy you're dealing with, with an object, say, two, three miles across hitting is just it's just a, it's stunning. You know, it's meant waves that go around the world, you know, multiple times. So sonic booms that go around the world multiple times. Uh, Firestorms. Of course, you have the, like, the dust that's thrown up. You know, it's a nuclear winter. I mean, it's... It's it sort of boggles the mind to imagine the level of destruction that you're talking about, and that there may be other secondary effects which also have turned up in my research. Is that it's possible that some of these impacts actually initiate things like magnetic reversals and you know other unexpected phenomena that comes out of them, right? So they're really, really you know destabilizing for the ecosystem yeah and, and so you just mentioned it so l- let's go talk about the the geomagnetic reversals um i know nothing about this so just kind of describe like what exactly uh is when you say geomagnetic what, what is that and then what is the uh the, the idea of a geomagnetic reversal sure i mean the current understanding is that due to the movement of molten iron in the core of our planet and also molten lava that the movements of this material are causing electromagnetic fields so we have this almost like a dynamo effect that the earth is constantly generating regenerating its its own electromagnetic fields now these extend down to space and they have they have a kind of beneficial effect in some ways they they do block some of the the cosmic energies that would come into our planet so they, they act in a way a bit like a shield for our planet, right? Obviously, we also use them for things like detecting where magnetic north is and all the rest of that. But they have this effect in space as well. One of the problems you get every now and again, and I say every now and again, usually it's supposed to be roughly every 200,000 years. At one point, it was around 200, every 200,000 years, there would be a total reversal, a flip from north and south. You know, so they would flip over. Your north would now be your south, south would be north. And the exact position of the north and south poles would also shift a bit during this process right so the last time this fully happened was again 780,000 years ago the period we touched on but there've been many of these reversals you know going all the way back to the beginning of our, our planet and when they occur the fields will weaken considerably first and this allows cosmic radiation cosmic energies to come into the system and now there's there are thoughts that this itself may be uh, harmful to life you know obviously there could be more cancers you know there's um it could be severe impacts on plant life which then of course has an impact on other larger animals that so th- these events are problematic now if it was to happen in our, our modern age right which they think it may be underway now there's signs that the poles are they're moving quite rapidly they've been weakening considerably over the last few decades right if, if there was a let's say a really fast reversal we would have extensive problems because of course it's going to impact all of our 
high technology, right? All the electric fields that we we utilize, right? We're going to have a problem. So this this could impact all of our satellites. You know, again, if you take out our satellites, right? Most of our high tech world would sort of crumble, really, right? Um, so it is something that is monitored, you know, carefully. There is a concern. We don't expect it to be so fast as to be that you know next year, you know, suddenly it flips. Usually, it's over centuries, right? I mean, some of them have taken thousands of years but we know the shorter ones have been over you know a few centuries but yeah so th- these are essentially uh, again mega events that happen on a a fairly understood cycle got it and, and, and so um how well accepted is the idea that um these geomagnetic reversals occur and, and are important to pay attention to yeah they're well established because what we can do you can find the reversed fields in rocks so if, when magma is produced, say, in an event, uh, when it solidifies, it will solidify with the, the field direction that was current at that time. So when geologists look at ancient rocks, you know, they can basically, they can find, you know, their different periods in time. The magnetic field in those rocks is opposite to the direction that we have now. And so over time, they've been able to pinpoint fairly accurately uh, when these past reversals have occurred. Now, the last one, last complete one was 780,000 years ago, but there's been um, wanderings of the poles, there's been partial reversals where there's been weakening and stuff, but for whatever reason, we haven't had one since then. It was understood that they would be on roughly every 200,000 years as a cycle, but something disrupted it at that point, right? So it's never bounced back to the, the expected cycle for some reason got it that that uh that makes sense um okay so so let's go to um kind of the origins of human history right or, or, or the homo sapiens um how long ago are we talking about right i mean when you go to the earliest hominins now the hu- humans are essentially part of the hominins group okay so all hominins are humans so we tend to think of humans as us but that's a bit of a, bit of a mis- misnomer essentially the earliest hominins lived around about six, seven million years ago. Now, these would have been, you, you could just about recognize them as being, you know, a human relative, but you're definitely thinking more of a kind of planet of the apes. You know, these were uh, more like ape men, right? So the Australopithecines, for example, if you look at them, they were, they were fairly short, you know, like four foot odd, you know, and then they've got small brains, like chimp-sized brains, but they have, certain features to the skull and to their anatomy that that tells us they're on their way to being more like us and less like you know chimpanzees and orangutans so that they have distinguishing morphology and cranial um, capacity that is increasing you know they are on their way towards it but these definitely you wouldn't think of them as being you know like if they got on the bus you know you, you wouldn't be like that's a normal guy. I'll sit next to him. You know, these they were quite recognizably more like ape men. It it took several million years for the forces of evolution, and there's many different ones actually involved. I mean, we think of um, natural selection, of course, you know, best known force that essentially, if you're suited to your environment, if you're well suited, you're more likely to have offspring. Um, if you're not, you tend to die off, and that's you know, natural selection. So that mutation that there are random and non-random changes in the genome which sometimes give new abilities which are beneficial or sometimes they're harmful and that these again have a role in 
who gets selected to be killed off and who survives. But there are others. We, we now understand that there's things like um, we have these feedback loops in epigenetics where you know you can be changed by your environment within a lifetime and that can be passed on to at least a couple of generations of your children. So if you go through a famine, right, your system will change to adapt to that famine, you know, the way you burn energy. And so, but that can also be passed down so that, you know, say your grandchildren are no longer living in famine, but aspects of their biology are still adapted to being in a famine, right? So these are these, these strange sort of very fast changes that can occur. We also have other things. We have um, like translocation. We have movements of, of um, information in the June genome, which just sort of jumps about these translocations, which again, th- these can change important aspects of an organism. So we're starting to realize evolution is far more complex than simply selection, right? That's what we're sort of getting at. And that due to these process, we end up with a, a much changed you know, ape man, if you like. By around two million years ago, we have the beginnings of Homo erectus. Now, this is a will be a recognizable uh, human relative. That it's you know we're starting to get the height. We're starting to get a larger brain. It's certainly a lot smaller than ours, um, about half the size. But we're getting you know we're getting the features that would be more in common to our own you know species. And they're the, they're really where the human story gets interesting because. Homo erectus are the first of these hominins to be really, really, really more global, more or less. We have them all throughout Eurasia. They're all the way down to Southeast Asia. Uh, there's been a couple of skulls found in the Americas, which appear to be Homo erectus, but they haven't been well studied. So at the moment, that's, you could say, is controversial. You can't say outright that Homo erectus were in America because, you know, the, the science hasn't been done on those. They just anomalies again my favorite things um and then we have some evidence that that they moved through the islands of indonesia and southeast asia that we have them out across many of the islands uh, flores has tools on it that date to over a million years ago so homorectus is really a global the first global human right uh, and then there's further evolution goes on from there our own our own species you know homo sapiens we don't start to emerge until around about 800,000 years ago, roughly. Got it. And, 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 you know, the way that I look at this, and again, this is coming from someone who is uh, not nearly as educated on the, on the topic as you are, is there's really three buckets of um, beliefs or, or story of the human origin, right? There is what I'll call the uh, evolutionary one, which is uh, we evolved out of apes and um uh, and, and there's very kind of scientific uh, reasoning um, and explanation as to how uh, Homo sapiens eventually, um, you, know, you know, kind of were the product of that evolution. Uh, then there is what I'll call more of a uh, um, fictitious or, or uh, religious kind of a story, um, um, and this really is uh, tied to the, uh, and I'll probably pronounce it wrong, but the Ananukai. Um, but this are, uh, you know, these direct descendants from uh, the gods and goddesses. And uh, they really had come down to uh, essentially decree the fate of humanity. Right. And, and this is depicted in a lot of um, the Mesopotamian art and, and kind of, uh, again, very similar to what we would consider like religion today. Uh, and then there is this hybrid 
um, that uh, I think you are probably much more into with some of your research. But before we get to your specific research, um, one of the debates that uh, I find fascinating, um, one of my favorite books is uh, Guns, Germs, and Steel by, uh, by Jared Diamond. And um, I think that there's now starting to become a debate as to uh, were the early humans as we know them, uh, was this more uh, in the continent of Africa? Uh, is this more in the Asia and Australia uh, region of the world? Kind of how do you think about um, the, the geography of the origins of humans and, and kind of which camp do you fall into? I mean, I have a book on the topic. I wrote a book called The Forgotten Exodus, the Into Africa Theory of Human Evolution, and the key being there, into rather than out of, because, you know, I went through the literature, again, through the academic studies, you know, look to see who, know, who who is the leaders in these fields and to find out yeah what really happened. And I, I had reasons to do that. I was involved in some research in Ecuador, a mysterious megalithic site there, which seems to be connected with a group of people called the Lagoa Santa, which are the, I would say, is the earliest uh, modern humans in the Americas. They were down in Brazil at Lagoa Santa. Um, it seems to be forty to 50,000 years ago. There's a number of sites there, rock shelters, whatnot. It didn't add up with the conventional recent out of Africa because these turn out to be a kind of Aboriginal Australian morphology right, type people. They, so they shouldn't really be there in the conventional model where now if people are sort of familiar, the idea is that supposedly modern humans came out of East Africa in a wave around about 70,000 years ago, and then populated, obviously, Eurasia, eventually Australia, and last of all, America, right? Um, it definitely isn't supposed to be like Aboriginal Australians, you know, down in America, sort of 50,000 years ago. So this is what led into my research. What I found is, and I've packed this up with, with all solid peer-reviewed papers and whatnot, you know, I don't go out and do archaeology, but what I found is the evidence really points to a homo sapiens population that is widespread now when i say homo sapiens say very archaic very very early homo sapiens who maybe would even be given a different name but we haven't given them one yet but from around about seven hundred thousand years ago or so we have these very archaic ancestors who are widespread they're not just in africa they are all across eurasia they are down into southeast asia i would say in australia the, the evidence has been removed by huge sea level changes so we've lost a vast amount of land down in southeast asia and australia and also there's no reason why they wouldn't have reached the americas okay so i would say we have a a vast population and then what we have over time is climate changes we have um obviously cataclysms all sorts of things which will change the locations where you'd find the bulk of these people so they move both into africa out of africa you know probably into the americas out of the americas as climate shifts in places or whether you know if there's a benefit to going somewhere else you know there's more food humans move we know that one of the most things about our species is we're highly adaptable we're highly mobile right we also find that this ancestral population begins to diversify uh, we start to get neander the early neanderthals denisovans but they're all coming out of this lineage the large brained what i would call the, the ancestors of homo sapiens and that these are in my view subspecies which a number of scientists now recognize that what we're really talking about is homo sapiens neanderthalensis homo sapiens denisova and homo sapiens sapiens right because we were all interbreed we know that we were in fact most of us you know, have some level of Neanderthal or Denisovan or a mixture of that and other hominid, ancient hominids in us, right? Because essentially we're one species, yeah? We, can, we don't have a problem with breeding. Um, 
there's minor issues. It, it does seem sometimes that there may have been some problems, but essentially we know that it was successful. And, and that basically what happens is at one point, there is a cataclysm, and this is at 73,000 years ago, right, which is the Lake Toba supervolcano down in Indonesia. And the effects of this are not only nuclear winter-type cataclysms, but it's fairly limited to the Northern Hemisphere. Now, this is eradicating life in the, all across the Northern Hemisphere. It's cooling the temperature, and it's already during an ice age. You get acid rain, you know, plants are dying, Plants die, animals die. If animals die, you know, humans that depend on those animals and those plants die. The water is poisoned, right, with sulfuric acid. So you, you can imagine this is a cataclysm on an immense scale, right? What we have is a die-off of most of the hominins of Eurasia. Now, some of them are pushed to the west and some are pushed to the southeast, i.e., if you get below the equator, you're okay. So if you can get down into Ireland, Southeast Asia, and to Australia, you're all right. And if you can cross the Babel Mandab Straits and into Africa from, from the Middle East, the, from Yemen, basically, if you can get across into Africa, then again, if you get to sub-equatorial Africa, you're safe. Now, this is exactly what the evidence shows. And we have a problem in science right now where there's a dogmatic approach that Reason out of Africa is is a holy cow that cannot really be questioned. Every article on the subject will start with seventy. You know, we know that seventy thousand years ago, uh, modern humans walked out of Africa. The rest of it we're still thinking about, right? But that bit is always beyond question. Now, when you do question it, you find that the evidence does not support it. And in fact, it's very clear we have refuges in Australia and refuges in sub-equatorial Africa. Uh, and after this climate event dissipates around 55, 60,000 years ago, humans begin to repopulate Eurasia, right? But we were there before. It's a repopulating event. Got it. And, and, and so as you think about the the evolution from that origin point, um, this is really where I think your research, um, you, you've uh, come to the conclusion and, and have a whole bunch of evidence that, that we'll talk about Um you kind of have this like divergence from the uh, traditional thought of the evolution. Maybe just start with um, kind of what the conclusion is, uh, and then we'll get into kind of what that supporting evidence that you have and the work that you've done to uh, to, to kind of um, back it up. Sure, uh, it's most basic. I I go along with you could say the evidence for evolutionary processes. As you can, see, you know, as I've sort of said there, you know, I, I'm not disputing that we have. Um, these various pressures and there's various factors of how the DNA code itself functions that, that cause evolution in species, right? So I'm not contesting that per se. So the difference in my work is I say that up until around uh, 780,000 years ago, that as best as we can say, you know, it's largely understood evolutionary forces at work. Now, that doesn't mean that there's nothing else going on by just saying the evidence is not strong enough to flat out say anything else happens. I do want to clarify one thing, though, for people aren't familiar with the idea of panspermia, that, you know, I am a panspermia theorist, if you like, that I accept the evidence that DNA itself arrives on this planet from space, that it, it doesn't emerge out of a rock pool here, that life you know, isn't just coming out of the dirt. That's, that's not my position, that I agree with a, a number of very well-respected academics who have, have theorized this. You know, It's not something I've come up with. The idea that DNA is a true code, that you can even think of it as a... Um, as a terraforming technology, right? That you spray, um, little, you can spray little pills of, full of material, genetic material onto a planet. You come back, you know, in a few minutes, you're going to have life, okay? Because 
that's what it does. It adapts to its adapts to its environment, changes that environment, produces new gases, new you know, a new surface for the planet. That that's my position. I, I go along with that. So I think DNA it contains a, a true code, and that it's extremely intelligent. Essentially, you could think of it as as really as um, AI, right? And like artificial intelligence, because if it's being created by someone out there and has been sprayed down here, then to some degree. I would say it's a true AI, right? But so you have this code in there, which we don't fully understand what it's doing, but it seems to adapt to things. It's very intelligent. It guides our adaption. It guides our evolution. So that's an important consideration. However, at around 780,000 years ago, we see a, a clustering of anomalies, right? And now I love anomalies. That's my thing, as we as said earlier. So when I see those, I think, aha, you know, what the heck is going on here? Why is it that science is stumbling over something? And they say, look, we know that in the fossil record, at around roughly 800,000 years ago, we get a sudden acceleration in skull size in the cranial capacity of early humans. It just absolutely rockets upwards, okay, beyond any relationship with body mass, you know, index. It, it just suddenly starts rocketing up. That was long understood. But what we didn't have before, of course, was genetic technologies where we could investigate what was going on at that time. Right now, that of course has changed. We've been able to go into the genome and explore, and what turns out is, yeah, that there are a range of strange anomalies at that point, and, and I consider them to be fingerprints of engineering by an advanced intelligence. So that's fundamental. Well, what are, what are those anomalies? Right. So, so pretty much, just to summarize, kind of where you come out on this is uh, there is a pretty well accepted. Um, and, and well-verified science that there was a change in skull size, um, you know, and there's kind of this inflection point uh, at one point in history. Um, what now is starting to come out is it wasn't just the skull size change, um, but there was also uh, change in the uh, the genetic code of uh, Homo sapiens. That change, I think you are in the camp of saying uh, that is less evolutionary and it was likely that there was some external force that acted upon that change um, or, or created that change. Is that yes. accurate? Yeah, it is. And, and and one important thing to say here is that there's a number of leading academics. Again, I don't want to say that it's just me coming up with this on my own, right? Because you've got leading academics, for example, Professor Paul Davies, who is considered to be the man that humanity will turn to you know, if we identify the presence of an extraterrestrial intelligence, right? So, you know, he's a, a leading astrophysicist, he's an astrobiologist, a mathematician, you know, an all-round great thinker. And he proposes the idea that, you know, alongside SETI research involving radio waves or looking at exoplanets, that we could look at the genome and see whether or not there's been a modification in prehistory which may have been carried out by a visiting intelligence and that this could be a signature, a message in a bottle left for when a, a intelligence, you know, arises on this planet. So, and this is supported by quite a number of um, very intelligent people in the world of science, right? So this is not some woo-woo strange idea. And in fact, I managed to get a question across to Seth Shostak at the SETI Institute, right, and asking whether he felt that this was valid research. And he and it was on a recent podcast. He was talking to um, a, 
a guy who's never scholar of mine now, but anyway, he, he actually clarifies that yes, you know, he agrees this is legitimate research and it probably should be done, but you know, that he feels it's probably a waste of time that we won't find anything. I mentioned though that it would only take a couple of weeks to do this. Bear in mind how long has it took to not find radio waves so far, right? Decades, and that it will, it will probably go on indefinitely without finding radio waves with millions of dollars going into that, and yet. These guys are telling us we can do a simple search of, of the genetic data that we already have, that might take a couple of weeks, and we could potentially find a confirmation of extraterrestrial visitation. Now, doesn't it strike you straight away? Is that something worth doing? Well, well here, here's the, the thought process is, again, it goes back to and, and why I wanted to start the conversation off with, uh, I am of the belief that science should incur experimentation and that there should be no sacred cows, right? And, and um, the ability to uh, expand our minds into uh, various um, possibilities and then go put them through scientific rigor uh, is really important. Right. It's kind of a belief that, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of uh, innovation happens from people who are not from an industry. Right. It's because it takes to think outside yes. the box um, mm -hmm. to actually get breakthroughs. Yeah. Um, and, and so when I think about kind of, you know, the work that you're doing, um, I, I want to really kind of push deep on, um, you know, this inflection point in the genetic code. What are the anomalies that, that you've identified or others have identified um, that, that lend itself to say, look, there just is an inflection point. There is a change in the genetic code at some point in history. How long ago are we talking about and what are those anomalies? Sure. I mean, the key ones relate to, um, again, I'm going to preface this a bit for people that aren't familiar. Um, when it's asked, you know, if an extraterrestrial intelligence was wanting to modify us in a way that could be detected or, or was modified and, you know, as a, as a happenstance, it could be detected, the changes would have to be in areas that are highly conserved and really in the non-coding DNA. Now, the reason for this is highly conserved means um, essentially very rarely changing, that these are very important areas of code. Like let's say the area that means you have a lung, right? You know, something like if you don't have your lungs, you're not going to do well. So highly conserved code stays very stable. So that's why they say, that, look, if there was a signature, we would expect it to be found in those regions. Now, that's really important because... I, that's where we find a whole load of these anomalies is in is actually in the highly the most highly conserved regions of non-coding DNA, right? And this is a mass question. What we find is, for a start, I'll give you a couple. There's these what's called HARs, and the name themselves is a giveaway. The human accelerated regions, right? Strips of code that seem to have undergone anomalous acceleration of changes right, in the in the short times that you know well, there shouldn't be any change. I'll give you a, a more specific example. We have something called HAR1, the first one of these that was detected. Now they contrasted a 118 DNA letter long piece of code across chickens chimpanzees and humans now between the chickens and the chimpanzees there was a two letter difference so they realized that every 150 million years you get one successful mutation in this area okay so unbelievably stable you know very important if you if any changes usually the organism dies right so then they will contrast that chimps against humans who 
roughly five, six million years or so of divergence, right? They expected there to be no difference by these odds of 150 million years per letter. But what they found instead was 18 letters had changed, right? So their minds were immediately blown because you know, there was just no explanation for that level of change. And so when they ran the, the computation systems, they actually software designed to compute this, they came up with it being essentially a 0% chance of this having occurred by any understood evolutionary mechanisms, right? So in other words, they've got nothing, right? And, and they're not offering any explanation for this. And they've now found several hundred of these, and they knew, the ones they understand seem to be to do with fetal development, particularly fetal development relating to the human brain, which is, again, is this anomalous organ that no other primate has a brain structure anything like ours. And in fact, most of the, the differences between us and other primates are in genes to do with the brain, right? And on top of that, we find a load of other anomalies. Some of these are in HARs are not really in genes, okay? They're in what's called um, areas for gen control genetic expression, right? So they will change the function of a gene or turn it on or off. But we also have genes that are anomalous. There's, um, there's a strip of code from one gene which has been described as having looked as though it was snipped out of a longer gene, copied, and then put back in. That sounds awfully like CRISPR-type technologies, right? And then there's a second of these where they said another brain gene, which they said it appears fully formed suddenly out of non-coding DNA, as though someone's just created the gene for one of the important areas. I think it's for the neocortex, folds in the brain, that you've got this gene just appears, right, out of non-coding material and does this incredible function for our brain. And so you've got those, and then you've got the fusion of chromosome 2, which occurs, again, 780,000 years ago, this time when these rapid brain changes going on, as we've mentioned. And this one fuses on an active gene which is to do with the brain the reproductive system and the immune system again key areas that you might want to get at if you're working on the genome and it, that coincides with some what was assumed to be huge benefits because we know that there's a total replacement that goes underway of all the hominins on earth right that before we had all of that 48 as, far, as we understand it all primates had 48 chromosomes right all humans today have 46 unless you have a genetic illness, you know, a condition that's arisen from either a fusion or a replication. And this is this is a total replacement. So we wouldn't expect this. We'd expect to have, say, a small, if it was a natural mutation, right, which would probably usually be neutral or usually negative, then you would expect there to be a small subgroup of people that have 46 chromosomes and, and the greater group to still have 48 right that's logic so the way to explain this it, they think is you have to have a small group of people that all develop this in short succession so they become a breeding popular an insular in isolated breeding population and it has to give them incredible benefits for it to persist and not to go back into the background and for it to become so widespread Right, that everyone on Earth ends up with this suggests that the changes were so incredibly beneficial that nobody else could compete with those that had this change. Right, so that is another one of these glaring anomalies. For like, why? How did that happen? Today, we might look at that and say, well, hey, with CRISPR gene drives, which is a cutting edge technology that's just coming in now, you can actually modify right the, the chromosome in such a way that when two you know, two individuals 
you know, interbreed, so you have your male and female, usually you get you know, a copy of information from each. Using gene drives, you can make it so that your new modified information overwrites that of the other parent. Yeah. So no matter you know, who the, the human mi- mixes with, you know, if it's another hominin homo erectus, for example, right, the, ch- the child will be like the modified parent, not a mixture of the two. Right. And that also is another way you can eradicate species. They're using it for mosquitoes, right? So you can use that to ensure that everyone that's born from those unions will be the new kind of creature, right? So that's, again, it's fascinating to see that that's something we're doing now, and that would easily explain this total replacement, is that a use of a kind of a CRISPR plus gene drives technology, right? So we have these anomalies, glaring anomalies there that are clustering in on this period 780,000 years ago, when the brain suddenly goes into overdrive and we have all these anomalies, and it's just, and, and as I say, they're in the regions where the leading experts tell us that we should look if we were to f- look, you know, if we were to find extraterrestrial modifications. Those are the areas we'd look to. And like leading academics are telling us, we should look and see if it's there. So it's, all of that's happening, and yet somehow that's being left to me, you know, instead of. And the academic, which is the strangest part of it all, really. Skirt, skirt. Want to know who has the best URL? Crypto.com. That's right, crypto.com. They're a crypto platform with one goal mother mass adoption. That's why we're all here. We're trying to get crypto in every wallet. Crypto.com is helping people do that through buying, earning, lending, and card payment. Everything you could want at crypto.com. Go help your boy out. Tell him Pomp sent you. Download the app or visit crypto.com. Pomp's got you always. Ever wanted to get into mining and didn't know how? Don't worry, your boy Pomp's got you. Everybody got some electricity and Wi-Fi. All you got to do is go to coinmine.com. You buy a coin mine. It's like an Xbox or a PlayStation that helps you turn your electricity into Bitcoin. That's right. You purchase it, it shows up at your doorstep, you pull it out of the box, you plug it in, connect to your Wi-Fi, five minutes or less, you're mining Bitcoin. All you have to do is control it from the mobile app they provide, and then you receive over-the-air updates that add new coins and new features on a consistent basis. Kind of like how Tesla does over-the-air updates and updates the car software. Just you're updating your coin mine. Consumer mining made easy. That's right. Go to coinmine.com, tell them Pomp set you, and thank me later. One more word from our sponsor, BlockFi. Their new interest account allows you to securely deposit your Bitcoin or Ether at BlockFi and receive 6% annual interest paid monthly in cryptocurrency. This rate actually compounds, so you receive a 6.2% APY, which is very attractive given the alternatives. So you can actually take your Bitcoin, you can deposit it with BlockFi, and get paid an interest rate of 6% in return. Go check out BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP to sign up and start earning interest on your crypto today. And, and I guess the, the big thing here is that there's two buckets to this, right? The first bucket is uh, identifying the anomalies, which uh, it seems like there is um, enough people who recognize and identify them, right? So, so it's harder to argue that the anomalies yeah. don't exist. Uh, the second bucket mm-hmm. is how did they get there? 
right? Or what, what was the force that, uh, mm-hmm. or, or kind of the um, the reason? And now this is where I think you get yeah. uh, much less consensus, much less uh, confidence. And because of that uncertainty in answer, you end up getting a wide variety, everything from natural evolution to uh, something that looks like CRISPR to um, something that literally could have been sprayed on people. I mean, there's all kinds of wild theories there. I guess my question to you is uh, you have a very specific um, kind of idea around what happened. What is the evidence that you've uh, either located or the work that you've done uh, to specifically identify that specific theory as to what drove these anomalies? Sure. I mean, yeah, I'm, again, it zones me in on that date as well, 780,000, um, which I don't think you find in any other models, to be honest. Nobody else seems to give you a specific point, which is important, you know. But the reason why I can do that is not only do we now have these anomalies, but I was already looking at that period because I was sort of following some clues in a, a set of mythology, but information that's come out of Aboriginal Australian stories mythology from which allegedly and again this is allegedly that they have an artifact or artifacts that they call a chiringa right which is this a small supposedly stone-like object with some symbols on it which they consider to be the most sacred objects right and that this can in some way transfer information and that they would get historical information from this object now in, its, in the stories that they share, their mythologies, whatever you want to call it, there is evidence that there was a visitation. They claim you know, that there was beings that came from the Pleiades, is one of the areas specifically mentioned. Um, the descriptions of what sound like wormholes, like some kind of great tree trunk that connects us to this place, or a tunnel, or a rope, right? There was all sorts of things in there that were fascinating to me. And on top of that, there's descriptions of a craft that comes here. Right, they're particularly a crystalline craft. Now, you can easily start to think, okay, you know, it's just stories. Like, as you said, there's lots of mythologies, you know, Anunnaki, the Bible. So what's different here? Well, I thought there was, there was enough in there that was specific that I thought, well, I can test this. There's a description of this very large crystalline craft. That's a, it's basically a living craft, right? To me, I'm thinking software AI, because on the cutting edge, of the AI world, we know that the theorists are telling us they think in the future there will be vast silica networks inhabited by self-aware AI or even uploading human consciousness into these silica networks, right? That, that we know that's essentially where the arrow is pointing. Now, being up to date with some of that and understanding that, when I hear about a living crystalline object, I'm straight thinking, hang on a minute, this you know, it might sound to some people like woo-woo, you know, big crystals. But if you understand that, you realize, hang on a minute, no, this is the kind of thing we should expect to see from an advanced extraterrestrial civilization, right? So then there's specific descriptions of this thing being in orbit, uh, breaking up, material raining down, and <laughs> enough there that I think, well, if this is real... I can check it in the geological papers yeah, and see if there's anything that matches this. Now, apart from me thinking, you know, there's no way that that's going to be that, even if it's real, it's so long ago, right, 780,000 years ago, that you know, I'm not confident it would still exist. So I went through, and it turns out that there's a 100-year-long mystery in science about a material called australite tectite. Now, australite tectite is um, essentially it's a 75% silica a uh, mixture with other aluminium and a, a wide range of other chemicals, magnesium. So I think there's about a dozen or more chemicals in there. But anyway, it's, 
it's particularly anomalous in that if you look at a map, I know I sent you across a map of this distribution field for it, it's enormous. Like the material covers between 10 to 30% of the Earth's surface, yeah, which when in normal, say, uh, an impact, right, when we get an impact, even a fairly large one, the material usually is in a fairly, uh, you know, fairly tight cluster. Yeah, we, we don't tend to have it that widespread. In fact, there's no other, there's nothing comparable, right? That this material is widespread. The other thing about it, it comes in a unique form, which is called a, a button tectoid. Now, some of the material, in other words, came from space to form this particular shape. It looks like a nose cone of a rocket. Yeah, so NASA, they looked at this because they understood that this had to have been shaped by the aerodynamic forces of material passing through the atmosphere from space, okay? They also worked out that the source body was an object at least a kilometer in diameter that was in orbit around our planet when it broke up and that the material carried on on a horizontal plane to the earth essentially in a decay orbit and came through a shallow angle had secondary melting which formed these button shapes right but they initially was in a sphere and spheres spheres of liquid form in space so it was liquid in space in the vacuum Uh, in fact there's bubbles of hard vacuum in the material so we know they formed in space and then it melted on its way through and we have this material right across from the southern tip of australia in fact antarctica all the way up to southern china and laos yeah this enormous distribution field so seeing that and understanding that hang on a minute this is the exact signature for the kind of event that's being described and then finding the date on it is seven hundred eighty thousand years ago right which is bang on when this these changes are happening, right, in the brain and the genome, that we've got this, what matches to this object that they're talking about that's come through a wormhole and, you know, a living ship, right? So I'm thinking, hang on a second, this is this is crazy because there's not a natural solution to this because asteroids, um, comets and stuff, we understand what they're made of, right? We, we've done pretty extensive work on that. They do not mesh with the chemical composition of this material. That's the first thing. For example, asteroids, you can have silica up to around 60%. You you don't ever get it up to 75% silica. Uh, Also, comets and asteroids of the size that we're talking about here cannot be pulled into orbit by the Earth's gravity. In fact, they'd be accelerated past us. Right, as they they came that close. They would essentially be accelerated past or they crash into us. They don't end up in orbit. So, so what kind of or asteroid can slow down, park itself in orbit, right? So this is a problem. NASA don't talk about that. They talk about what the material is made of, uh, how it rained down. Nobody seems to tackle the glaring anomaly that this thing is parked in orbit, yeah? So that's an absolute mesh. We've got these legends claim. Now we have that, and then there is the second part, which we touched on earlier, which is that amongst the information is a, a claim of a multi-directional bombardment of asteroids around the same time five years later in fact it's quite specific um that there is this other bombardment and like i'm thinking there's no way you know that this has happened because i've never heard of it you know i think i'm fairly well versed in ancient events particularly big cataclysms you know it's a passion of mine i like cataclysms in history uh, never heard of it so i went searching for that to see if there was any evidence of that part of this um this claim and it turns out that in 2015, a team of geologists from a university in Germany, they found this multi-directional bombardment that we discussed earlier, right? So it was a very recent discovery. Certainly so, you know, nobody should have known about it, you know, in ancient times in Australia among the Aboriginals. Right? It's a 2015 discovery. 
and that these things were some of them enormous is the one we talked about in antarctica right leaving a crater 200 miles by 200 miles you know absolutely enormous that this is also part of the claim that this event happens around the same time now what i didn't know is as well is that supposedly these impacts may have actually caused the magnetic reversal now this is being looked at at the moment that they think these huge impacts are what initiated the sudden field reversal and are probably why we haven't seen one since that, that this destabilized the normal cycle of the earth's field and so we're getting a cluster of mega events right right on that moment which also happen to fit with this narrative that's coming out of an ab- aboriginal australian you know cultural setting and that they relate to an object which can communicate information. Now, what is that object? I would posit that it's a Bracewell probe. And, and so one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation was you, you had said to me that um, there was essentially this identification or detection, right, and um, of an alien technosignature in the form of an extraterrestrial post-biological artificial intelligence craft. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what you're describing right, right now. Right. Is that the the theory that you have um, uh, kind of uh, created here and and are in the process of testing is that um, what we see in those early uh, stories or or, um, art, et cetera, uh, end up coinciding with scientific uh, revelations or um, uh, studies around the, the breaking up of some material that ends up striking the earth, et cetera. Your claim is it's unlikely mm-hmm. to be uh, more of a meteor shower as much as it is uh, a certain type of material uh, that we previously had not seen on Earth before, right? So, so, so it's something that came not from Earth, uh, but how do you make the connection from that material to, um, you know, kind of the extraterrestrial post-biological artificial intelligence craft? Like, what, like what does that mean? And, and how do you make that connection from the material to um, that, that uh, theory? Sure. I mean, because we would expect it to be a highly silica material. And I'd say this is way beyond the percentage of silica that's known in asteroids, meteorites, or comets. So irrespective of the other compound, I mean, there's other chemicals in there that make it unlike other, like, unlike asteroids or comets, okay? But the really the signature for me is this extraordinarily high level of silica because if we have like a, a quartz crystal being the main component of a living AI craft, then we would expect melted silica to be you know, the highest percentage of the debris from the destruction of a craft like that. And that's what we find in it. So it's a, it absolutely parallels what we should expect if we were to be visited by a craft like that. I mean, we're fortunate that it's destroyed in orbit for whatever exact reasons. But if we hadn't been, we'd have no, no evidence, obviously. But the second thing is, again, is that the fact that this can park itself. Yeah. Now, I've looked at the astronomy and physics information on this and it is it is stated that these objects cannot end up in orbit and i just want to reiterate that to people that if they want to, if they want to posit a natural solution for this then you have to explain the physics right you have to say how can this vast object park itself in orbit yeah and then you have to deal with the fact that they also there's several papers pointing to an extrasolar origin 
for this material due to um, detection of the effects of cosmic radiation on it and also some of the isotopic values in it. The suggest here has come from outside of our solar system, which again is important. Um, so we have an object from beyond our solar system that is unusually high in silica and that can stop and move into an orbit, right? And that happens to coincide with several other huge anomalous events right including this a few years later this bombardment which almost resets the earth and then strange changes in the genome of early hominins right and we have this connecting to an aboriginal story of an object which sounds like a bracewell probe which if, if people are familiar with bracewell probes essentially it's a again another software ai but on a smaller scale, an object that can be left on a planet, it's something called a sentinel probe, that they can record, they can maybe do other other functions, but they can record and they can also interact at some point. Now, the theory by, by the scientist Bracewell was that these could even be used to make contact with a civilization. If you send them out into space, you, you leave the, you know, the hard AI on board, they have volume and self-repair functions and maybe even self-replication functions. So you can have these things spreading out across the cosmos, arriving on planets or even hiding in orbit and orbiting around planets, watching them or being left. And that you just leave them as a technology, the technology is indistinguishable from background material. So let's say you hide it, it looks like a rock. Yeah? Now, it's always been a truly advanced technology would probably be unrecognizable to us. And that's, again, that's understood in, in these levels of, of theoretical sciences on these subjects, so, you know, that we wouldn't necessarily know what AI tech looks like. So if you imagine a group of ancient Aboriginal people encounter a Bracewell probe, not knowing what it is, and that this thing is able to communicate information, I would suggest through a voice-to-skull type technology, which we have now in MIT and places they're working on these, and they can transfer information, starts telling them about it, how it's got here, the background, the story, and they, they decide it's a, a, we might think of it as a sacred artifact, a holy artifact. It's put into the most, you know, the holy of holies. Um, you're not even supposed to look on these things, right? You're not, only the highest initiated people are meant to even go near the thing, right? That's the cultural understanding, particularly the, the I guess the Arendi people and another, another group that also have this, this belief, and that this object seems to then be producing valid uh, information, which can be verified. That's the key bit. You know, I, I, look, I haven't seen it. I haven't gone and touched it. I mean, so you can say, okay, maybe it's not there. I don't know. But the, the fact is, the information that I've looked at and I've used led me to these astonishing discoveries that I never would have you know, existed. I wouldn't even be looking for this if it wasn't for that. And it turns out you have it 780,000 years ago, all of these events, this strange object in orbit, the changes in the genome, the bombardment, uh, and the magnetic reversal, all on 780,000 years ago. And it's almost extraordinary that we don't have that as a well-known discussion, you know, like the dinosaur subject. The fact is, there was mega events going on, and they're not well-known. It's, it's really bizarre. And I, like I said, even as a theorist in these subjects, I hadn't heard of any of these until I started doing this research. It was really extraordinary. Yeah, and, and, and I think you know, as I look at this, right, um, you, you spent many, many more hours than me on this. But but the way that I break down um, kind of the work you've done so far is uh, you have taken a pretty well-established, accepted scientific fact 
around mm-hmm. uh, some of the materials, some of the uh, uh, bombardments, etc. And then you have also used uh, what I'll consider more theoretical um, uh, constructs, right? So whether it's uh, somebody else's, right, in terms of um, the, uh, the the methodology um, that other people presented, or things that you you have, um, and where you you've come to a conclusion is uh, those things when overlaid on each other all intersect with. Uh, at the same time period as a number of very interesting anomalies that can, again, be identified and, and are uh, fairly well accepted from a scientific standpoint. I guess the, the big question that I have for you, right, is because uh, when you combine um, well-accepted fact that has been established through scientific rigor with things that are more theoretical, uh, you introduce the idea of like uh, a confidence level. Right, because the, the theoretical component of this mm-hmm. um, ends up being uh, harder to to back up with with uh, supporting evidence because you, you're still putting it through the scientific mm-hmm. rigor. What would you put the confidence level you have in terms of um, kind of this theory being um, accurate and, and in the future being able to uh, to prove some of it uh, to a greater extent than uh, we are today? Well, look, I'm happy for people to look at the the mythology part of it if you want as being simply something that got me interested in the topic now whether it's real whether there's really this artifact and it can do all this you know i can't say because again you know to be objective i didn't see the object you know i didn't have an experience with it right so i don't you could say okay well even if you discount that you're still left with these genuine you know as you say rigorously scientifically tested anomalies which are clustering together, which is an anomaly on an anomaly, right? Because when you get those kind of things happening at the same point in time, again, that's a red flag for something strange is going on. And then on top of that, you can scientifically evaluate things like how would you, you know, why is this object made of uh, materials that aren't typical, right, for other bodies in our solar system? What causes it to stop an orbit? These are testable, right? Same as with the, the genetic data, again, that's testable because you can, if you infer that there's been possible modification, now what would be required is geneticists to spend some time focusing particularly on changes that happened around 780,000 years ago and on those anomalies, the HARs, and also on the fusion event. Right? These are testable. And on top of that, not only testable, if you really think about it, I mean, for anyone out there who's in the genetics field, right, finding the fingerprints of master geneticists, right? And just as we're going into the genetic revolution with CRISPR, if we can find the fingerprints of master geneticists who could who could make humans out of these early hominins, right, that's got to be invaluable information. You know, if I was in the genetics field, I would want to hone in and see what did they do because we're about to open Pandora's box, right? We all know that. Yeah, we're, we're going to start modifying babies and stuff. We're going to start creating new humans. Wouldn't it be nice to have a starter in that? from an extraterrestrial intelligence that knew what the heck it was doing and was able to go in there and almost play us like a piano at the code level, right? Like these 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 master code breakers, you know, they went in, changed humans. If that is valid, yeah, and if the evidence is really pointing to that, bear in mind there's a 0% chance of these changes by known evolutionary means, zero so far, no other solutions except for an intelligence being involved, yeah, that if we can go in and find what they did and understand it, maybe we can evade the horrors of experimenting on humans with all these technologies and know what the hell we're doing, right? And actually fix problems instead of create problems. So I, I think there's 
a financial and ethical reasons for why we might want to check this, you know, really important reasons, and that we have valid science there. We already have these HARs identified. We have the knowledge on chromosome 2. You know, it's there, right? I'm not a geneticist. I cannot go to the lengths I would like, right, to validate this. What I would like is the engagement of people who are capable of now going in there and saying, hey, yeah, actually, you know what? This does look like the signature of you know what we would do if we had the know-how. This is how we would change a human, right? Because that's something that there's people who are capable of doing. And again, with this object, astronomers, physicists should be able to look again at that ostrich-like material and say, hey, could this be the, the composition of an advanced craft? Because surely our space scientists, right, and our you know our designers and stuff, wouldn't you want to know what an extraterrestrial race builds its ship out of? Right. So, again, these are these are huge drivers that if people take this seriously and look at it, you know, the potential benefits are enormous versus the costs. I mean, we already have most of the data there. So the costs are minimal. The payout could be enormous beyond imagining. So what is your thoughts on uh, CRISPR technology kind of as we go forward? Is this something that you're, you're in uh, support of and you think should be uh, encouraged and experimented with? Or are you more um, on the side of, hey, this is very dangerous and we should be incredibly cautious and, and probably shouldn't push the pace of innovation there? It's definitely dangerous. I mean, there's no doubt it's dangerous. But I mean, I, I, it's also inevitable. Uh, I don't think any controls will ever stop it completely. And we've already seen that, you know, a scientist in China started changing some babies. He didn't have permission. He just did it, right? Um, I, think there's, I think there's been recently some testing done with merging chimps and human DNA. And stuff, right? So this stuff's going to happen, whether I agree with it or not. But I actually would support it in a way. I think particularly if we want to be a cosmic civilization, if we want to go out into space, right, we are going to have to use these technologies. I don't believe it's possible for a, a Homo sapiens to go out and colonize space. We suffer with incalculable conditions. Even just going up and being in the space station, right? You start to basically degrade away here. Um, and then we have links with the, not only the Earth's field, but the Earth's rhythms, which means that if you were to relocate to Mars, it's not clear that we could even reproduce there. Our fertility and stuff is, is maybe we won't actually be able to have children on another planet. How do you colonize worlds, right? If your bones degrade, you start getting weird illnesses, um, you can't have children. You know, at some point, we have to look and say, look, if you want to go into space, it's not just about the technology you take with you. It has to be the organism itself has to be changed and has to be adapted for the environments it's going into. So I support that as long as people are... are happy to have therapies done to them to be an astronaut. Now, I don't know whether I'd say it's right to experiment on a, you know, on a fetus and say, we're going to make the, engineer the next generation of space people, but without asking them, we're just going to change the, you know, the fetus' genome. Well, you know, that that I, I wouldn't agree with. Obviously, that's very, very much an ethical issue. But if there are genetic therapies, which an adult can say, well, okay, I'm willing to, to have that done, you know, I want to go into space, then... Yeah, I think that is the only way that we are going to explore space. What is the issue with uh, kind of the human as an organism uh, in space? Is it like a radiation thing or, or what exactly is um, causing that de de degradation of the human organism uh, when it Gravity, one of the major... I mean, we're unlikely to end up in a, an environment with our exact you know, the exact strength of gravity that we have here. That's that's a major issue for us. You know, we are well acclimatized to our, also to our, uh, the breathing environment. I mean, let's say that you find a, 
a planet that has a, a different balance of gases, right? But it's not completely poisonous. But but there, you would struggle to breathe, and the gravity was maybe fifty percent, right? And then it's it's time moving around the star is different, you know, and the day is a different length, like. We have a lot of problems with that. All of our natural rhythms will be thrown out. Yeah, our breathing is going to be a problem. So say maybe reproduction is a problem. We're going to have all of these issues, right? Uh, your bones, your bone basically start to, you lose bone density. So you have all of these problems. If you can modify humans for that environment, then you can maybe overcome that. We can change, you know, we can change at a fundamental level. Our requirements for breathing, you know, for our a reproductive system I mean, there's all sorts of things that we can potentially do if we have a thorough understanding of the the dna code and of how the essential parts of the genome particularly these highly conserved regions because if you start playing with highly conserved regions you know if you bear in mind that through natural mechanisms you know it takes 150 million years for one successful mutation like in some of these areas right obviously they're they're very dangerous areas to just play with right if you don't know what you're doing you're really going to kill almost every experimental fetus right so but if we can understand those areas you can you can really change almost anything about us you don't need that's why hybrid humans in my my work. I don't necessarily need splicing loads of alien material. I'm not, you can hybridize with other species. Like you can put in some genes from a fungus, some genes from a cow, whatever. Yes, some degree of that. But I, I think mainly what we're going to be looking at is modifying the code at a very fundamental level, and not necessarily having to hybridize too much. Although that w- that will be part of the story. Yes, we're going to take things that we think are beneficial. You know, you might take a gene from a squid because it gives you a benefit to live on Mars, right? That for some reason it gives you a benefit. So yeah, we'll put that in. But a lot of this I think is, yeah, modifying the code. I broadly support it as long as it's, again, done in an ethical setting. But I mean, the ethics are complex because you're not just changing yourself. If you have children, of course, you've decided for your children that they will be homo sapiens 2.0 right that they don't get a say that even though you're not modifying the fetus if you're modifying the parents and they have offspring the offspring have had that modification like it or not right so obviously the the ethics of these processes are inordinately complex but their nature changes us without asking so <laughs> yeah and, and look and, and part of this i think is um you know, there's two components in, in my mind one is just the end state right eventually we will be genetically modified um you know kind of these uh weird combinations of uh, science technology and, and humans right and there's some uh, very easy uncontroversial things like hey if we could present uh prevent disease uh or we could present uh, prevent um, some sort of uh, genetic um, issues, that would probably be a positive thing, right? especially if we could do it with no side effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there are um, kind of much larger arguments around just, hey, humans want to run faster, jump higher, be smarter, you know, kind of the, the augmentation. I think mm-hmm. the, the controversy is really how do we get to that end game, right? And so if you look yeah. at China versus the U.S., you know, I'm probably of the mindset that China has a significant advantage when it comes to uh, biotechnology, um, you know, the the biohacking, the CRISPR technology, et cetera, because frankly, they're just willing to do things that here in the United Mm -hmm. States, we're either one, unwilling to do or two, we we think is unethical uh, and they have no problem with it. Right. It's a cultural difference. Um, And so, you know, again, it goes back to the idea that the group that has the ability to uh, provide resources to something, to have their smartest people working on it and to encourage experimentation, they're just likely it's the probability that they're going to make faster progress because they're spending more time on it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we probably will see China in some respects leading this. And I, I feel, like, again, I don't want to get too much into the, the way different cultures think, but we know that um, the Chinese culture historically is about kind of what's good for China, you know, is thinking within China's boundaries, but obviously taking using resources and relationships to increase that and not to tech, sometimes borrowing ideas and whatnot. Whereas the US, Europe and stuff, we tend to have this, this more about this global idea that, you know, we're making this global community and and um, the way we think is very different. I think China's more insulationist in that respect. They're not really, although people say they're looking like they're going to invade us. I don't think so. If you look at China, what they can say more about is, you know, what's good for China and China keeping, you know, its own its own culture and its own ways distinct, right? Whereas we like this idea of globalism and, you know, they're completely different. I feel that within that, the Chinese mindset is very different and that, yeah, they are they are willing to push these boundaries. And we know that historically even that they were ahead of us in science. If you go back you know, centuries ago, they gave us gunpowder and stuff, you know, they, they had um, scientific revolutions that were unparalleled, right, in the world beyond at the times they occurred, right? Again, like the Arab world at one point, again, was well ahead, you know, in, in the sciences with medicine. So, so but they, they historically, yeah, the, I, I think that the culture favors that kind of progressive thinking in some ways. In other ways, not. I mean, there's ways that, you know, where we wouldn't probably say, oh, that's really progressive in China. But um, in the tech and in this, you know, in the, in the biohacking and stuff, I think that, yeah, they're going to really leap ahead. Um, and clearly, again, in your area, but obviously we're seeing that in uh, blockchain tech. and that the, the, the Chinese really, I, I see them ending up with some of these, yeah, these kind of super people probably ahead of us. And I think a lot of these millionaires in China are looking to, and also that the idea that, you know, that, having your, your children fought in a different way as well. The idea, you know, that we know historically that, you know, the sun had to be the dragon guy and all the others that they're kind of thinking about making the best children and the one child policy, which led to, you know, that, well, we had to have a boy because a boy is better for various purposes. You know, so that kind of thing as well, which we, we wouldn't be so familiar with in the West, right? Which leads to the idea that, you know, there's also this, I think there is that focus that now they want to to make that perfect child, you know, that's going to be the best, the strongest, the, the fittest, which again fits with the cultural background. So it's, I won't be surprised if we get left behind in that. I mean, as I say, they already got that experiment where the chimp and the human genes are mixed. That, that was in China because the, the guy is actually a U.S. scientist, I think, and he, he couldn't do it in the U.S. because of the of the regulations. So he just moved the experiment to China. And obviously we had the other experiment I mentioned where CRISPR was used to modify a couple of babies there. So it's already happening, right? So it's sort of inevitable that unless there's a change in the mind state, in the US and in Europe, that we will be left behind by the Chinese and that they will have uh, genetically enhanced people, you know. So, so what do we do with that? I mean, I, I guess we have to in some way, I don't know, what is your thought on that? Do we go with it or do we stay conservative? Look, I, I tend to think that uh, th- th- there's, a, uh, th- th- there's a middle ground, right? So it doesn't have to be binary. And, and what it is is you basically create opt-in programs. Right, that there's a lot of people who uh, would be more than willing to opt in in exchange for uh, whether it is payment, whether it is uh, the potential to uh, solve a problem they have, right? Whether it is uh, they have a disease or something like that, and they're, and they're willing to do yeah. more experimental um, treatments, uh, or even there's plenty of people who literally would be willing to take the risk uh, because they would like to uh, run faster, jump higher, or be smarter, right? And kind of the augmentation stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I'm more of the belief that uh, every 
human individual uh, should have free choice and, and should be uh, allowed to kind of take the risks that they want as long as they're educated on it, right? So, so, so I don't think that it's a thing where you can just blindly, you know, one day wake up and say, hey, I want to, uh, you know, get CRISPR done. But but I do think that if there was some sort of educational um, course or something that somebody went through and they were very, you know, um, kind of uh, blatantly and simply uh, told what the potential upsides are and what the uh, potential risks were, and then you make a decision for themselves, right? And, and kind of the government should stay out of their lives, frankly. Well, I agree. Look, if we're okay with the idea of sending people one way to Mars, right, which is something that there's been obviously a lot of volunteers have said that they would go on a one-way trip to Mars, yeah, with the sort of Mars One and all this, right? Um, and obviously SpaceX and other people are going to try it, yeah? Like, we know there's a, there's a huge chance that that first mission is a disaster, but we would allow people to go into that disaster, right? Because it's in the name progression and they want to do it. As you say, they're choosing to go. Now, if, if we're happy to send people on what is probably a doomed, you know, a disastrous doomed mission to Mars, the first manned mission, maybe it's successful, but I think most of us would be conservative in that, thinking that mm, the first time, probably not good. But what if we could say to those people, well, hey, look, obviously you're willing to throw your lives at this. You know, we can also offer you gene therapies that will give you a better chance, at least, of surviving on Mars. Now, isn't that the right thing to do? I think that's the right thing to do, because if, if they're going to be probably stuck there, and you know that they're going to struggle with the, the gravity, the, the atmosphere, you know, is it any more radical to offer them these changes than it is to send them to live on a alien planet, like without any real way of surviving there beyond being in a bubble, which could fail at any time. I, I think that, you know, again, you start to into, if you're willing to throw people into what looks like disasters, like why not let them have the choices to do other, you know, other things paralleled to that, which I think that, yeah, these China technology are parallel, no more risky or crazy than sending people one way to Mars. Absolutely. And, and look, I, I, we could talk about this stuff forever. One of the things I want to make sure we talk about bef before we go is, um, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here, uh, it's not lost on me and probably not lost on you that either one, uh, it's unpopular. Two, uh, there's some people who just kind of write it all off and say that's just crazy talk. Um, and then three is uh, there's actually a lot of establishment or incumbent uh, organizations, scientists, etc., that that uh, will go to great lengths to prevent the spread of the information um, because it potentially threatens their position of power, uh, importance, or uh, um, kind of uh, work. You've actually had a number of occasions, um, certain levels of censorship that you've dealt with. I think recently um, there was a, a situation where you were cited in an article uh, and then all of a sudden, you know, it was kind of deleted. Um, and it was, you know, really that publication saying, hey, uh, he's not a professional anthropologist, right? You know, you can't use work. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe just talk a little bit about your experiences with um, trying to share these ideas and, and what um, you've run into, both positive, you know, from the supporting side and then also negative from the obstacle side. Sure. I mean, I have, I've said I have some quiet supporters. I do talk to some scientists who are helpful and they give me feedback on things that I do, but mostly in quiet because, again, it's detrimental to them to be publicly associated with me, right? Because because I'm dealing with radical ideas or ideas that aren't in the consensus. Um so I understand that. It's sad, but I understand that. I understand why they don't want to be publicly associated with me in my work, right? Which, again, but that's a cultural problem. And then we have, yeah, of course, the media, which is a, a big issue because without getting this kind of information out into the media for dissemination, then there's no pressure for scientists to look at it because then they go, well, you know, most of them won't even hear of it for a start, you know. Um, 
obviously the, the way the framework works, usually discoveries are supposed to come from a university or a foundation. A press release goes to the media. Uh, then they publish an article, you know, make it popular, in which case it brings more support to that research, etc. If, if you're on the outside of that, me contacting journalists usually results in one of two things. Either total silence, probably goes into the spam box, you know, whatever, um, or a reply of, you know, not really interested kind of thing, because it's not what they're expecting, right? They're thinking, oh, it's some, some crank or whatever, you know, that uh, they don't get as far as to even know if you have real evidence, right? You'll never get to that because you're not PhD so-and-so from university such-and-such, right? The door closes. But the exception I had there was I had a, a scientist who was also a science journalist who saw the validity in my work. Now, that doesn't mean he agreed with all of the, you know, the hypothesis, but he saw the validity and he saw that I was using, you know, peer-reviewed academic sources, right? Which is you know, sort of gold standard sources. Uh, I'm not going out and pretending that I'm doing archaeology or genetics, right, on my own, right? There's, there's none of that. When you say pseudoscience, it's not pseudoscience because if it's pseudoscience, then the sources I use are pseudosciences, which is ridiculous because most of them are leaders in their fields, right? Um, and so this guy, he wrote an article for Forbes, and that, that went out it was December, last December. And within a couple of hours, it had been spiked by senior editors and deleted. And he was told that never to refer to me as a source again because, um, yeah, that I wasn't a suitable uh, academic source for the story. And it's like, and I, as he said, it, it doesn't make any sense because obviously if there is a criticism of the work, that's the place to have it. Is you put it in public, scientists can see it, they can clarify in the comments or with a, re- a response article, right, saying, oh, Fenton is wrong because of this, this, and this, and to have that discussion, which, is, as he said, is a legitimate process, right, you have the discussions. The fact that you're silencing that conversation is ludicrous. That's obviously censorship, right? Um, and the fact was that they have, well, as you know, like in Forbes, there's loads of articles, right, which are opinion pieces, which are not coming from, like, the leader in, a, in an academic field, right, that you'll have religious conversation where people just come out with whatever thing they believe, and that's fine. But when you're dealing with a, a sacred cow, as I was, because it was about out of Africa and challenging the recent out of Africa, that was no, 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 no. That, that cannot go out there. And that was just spiked it was so rapidly that, you know, almost my head spun that, you know, a couple of hours later, someone has just gone in there and spiked it and said, get that off the website. No explanation. And even a leading anthropologist said to me, like, he was baffled. He was like, well, they didn't even put, like, an apology to readers that we've deleted this article because we think it's, it's you know, got something wrong with it. Nothing. He said that's almost, like, offensive to the readership because you're putting it, you're saying it's good enough to publish, and there's someone else who's come along and saying, get it off there, delete it, with no explanation, right? That, uh, and again, this lead-down project was actually baffled. He said he'd never heard of that happening to anyone, <laughs> right? So think about that. For sure. And, and I think that p- part of what you've experienced, we're seeing with, um, you know, what is now coming out of the shadows with more of like the UFOs and Area 51. Um, and, and it almost feels like uh, there is more um, acceptance or a responsibility being taken, um, whether it is uh, individuals that uh, have had these experiences and are able to uh, verify or, or support uh, those claims, uh, or it is the, the U.S. government themselves, right, in releasing um, various uh, videos or, um, or kind of details. What's your take? take on um, kind of these individual stories that we're hearing and kind of why now some of this stuff may be coming out and, and maybe becoming uh, much more uh, accepted and less taboo. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting. We have this phenomenon now where the last couple of years, major media platforms are tackling subjects like, you know, UFOs, um, also now possible alien materials, you know, debris that may come from an extraterrestrial ship. Um, but, you know, would you have thought, you know, three, four years ago that you'd be seeing articles in like the New York Times that were talking about um, UFOs and, you know, major media platforms talking about alien debris? I mean, it, it's quite a sea change, isn't it? I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> um, but Even the Harvard professor who says, you know, the UFO that came into the solar system and then mm-hmm, kind of left... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all of this stuff is uh, it, it, it is getting um, what I would consider valid media attention and coverage. Uh, and I think it's driven partly by curiosity yeah. and partly by the, the fact that it's hard to ignore at this point. It is. And, right, and the fact that we've got you know, the head of the Harvard astronomy saying that, you know, this Oumuamua object could have been a probe, you know, an alien probe coming through our solar system. I mean, that's astonishing. And again, some people saying that he was doing that just for media attention. But as he pointed out, he put it into, you know, some obscure science and paper and that he hadn't even put it into the public. It was a journalist, someone stumbled on it and realized that, you know, that this would make a good story. But, you know, it was a serious science paper. He wasn't trying to get any attention or anything, right? He just, he noticed that it had anomalous characteristics, that, you know, it was unusually reflective. Uh, it was, it was sp- seemed to be spinning in a certain way, which, again, suggested it was unusual. Uh, it had um, this red coloring. It was covered in a lot of, well, they think it's a metallic kind of debris. Or something. And then it accelerated as it moved out of our solar system. And another thing that I want to highlight there, because I find Oumuamua really fascinating, I suspect, again, could be that it's some kind of panspermia machine. And the reason why I say that or is because it come, when it came through the solar system, it doesn't just pass by Jupiter or something. Right? You know, what happens is it, it entered our solar system um, basically between the, the orbits of Mars and Earth, and it crossed the plane of our solar system between these two planets, the orbits of these two planets. Now, it's, that's awfully coincidental because Mars and Earth are the only two planets in our solar system that are quite obviously capable of supporting life. Right, that they have water, they have you know a soil which we now some Martian soil could grow things in it. We think there's probably bacteria. In fact, you, the news came out, didn't it, recently that they're admitting that decades ago there was the signature for life on Mars. We now have multiple signatures for life. We have the methane emissions. Uh, we know there's liquid water, there's frozen water. There's this, as I say, this past soil sampling with what seems to be life. There's pictures of what look like lichens on rocks. Basically, you've got what look like mushrooms growing on rocks. Right, so. Isn't it funny that this object just happens to pass between the only two planets in our solar system that look like they can support life? So if you were sensing for life, that's basically where you'd want your probe to go. But also if you were distributing life, you know, if this is something that's launching out spores, bacterial spores or something, again, we may even have these raining down on us from the machine. But either way, you know, he was willing to point out that this had characteristics that suggested it could be an extraterrestrial technology passing through our solar system. And that's, that's astonishing to see, to see someone of that caliber saying that. And he also goes on to say as well, which is a, a, key, a key quote I kind of use, but he says that, you know, that when we're faint, although that we should have evidence, I'm paraphrasing, he says, although we should always have evidence of things, if we find an anomaly, we should recognize the anomaly. Right? And otherwise, how do you progress anything, right? Because unless you're going to say, look, this is super weird, let's throw some science at it, right? You know, let's work out what this is. If you just say, well, it's weird, now everyone look the other way until it's gone, you know, pretend it's not there, right? But what the heck is that? 
So that's what we've been doing with anomalies, right, for centuries. We've been doing the, let's pretend they're not there. And I, I think that what we're seeing now is a sea change in that it's like, well, look, there's all these anomalies. You know, there's these, what people call UFOs. There's strange things flying through our solar system. There's, you know, an abnormalities in the genome. There's all these anomalies. Hey, why don't we turn and face them, do some really good science, and find out what the heck they all are, you know, whether it's psychic powers, I don't care, you know, whatever it is, you know, no matter how strange, we should throw good science at them until we can either explain them or explain them away, right? And that, that's how it should work. And UFOs is now finally getting that too. Like UFOs is a term I don't, I don't like to use, right? But um, you sort of have to, right? I'm not very interested in UFOs. I'll start by saying I'm definitely not a ufologist. I hate the term ufologist and ufology because like, if you think about it, um, you wouldn't refer to an underwater swimming thingologist, right? But you'd have a marine biologist. Yeah, we all know what a marine biologist is. An underwater swimming thingologist is un- unbelievably vague and just sounds ridiculous, okay? Ufologist is the same, really. You've got unidentified flying object, you know, <laughs> what the heck is that? Right, uh, and a UFO contains ninety-five percent explainable phenomena. So misidentifications of aeroplanes, um, balloons, satellites. Right. So I'm not particularly. So since I saw a UFO, I think well, it's probably a satellite because most people don't even look up. Right. So what do they really know about the things in the sky? Yeah, almost nothing. Right. So. But what I'm interested in is, is where the filtering's been done. So if an organization like MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, if they take the cases of the UFOs and they go through them, right, they get rid of all the, the junk, what you end up with is something like 5% yeah, that remain and that these are anomalous phenomena. These are basically anomalous aerial vehicles, AAVs, and anomalous aerial phenomena, AAPs. Now, that's what I'm interested in. These anomalous aerial vehicles and phenomena, okay? The 5%. I'm not interested in UFOs. I'm not a ufologist. And as you can see, I, I, I'm quite clear that it's anomalous phenomena I'm interested in. Because anomalous, that is an initial identification. So they're no longer completely unidentified. Because if you can find structure or propulsion or you know, cloaking tech, or something. But you're now starting to get an identification on it, right? You know it's a craft at that point, yeah? It's not just, ooh, a light in the sky, what's that? Oh, it's a UFO. If you can tell me, no, it's triangular, it was metallic, it's got a radar signature, it moves like this, right, well, okay, you've identified that it's a type of anomalous craft, right? So now I know what's it made of, where's it coming from, how does it move? Now you've got something to work with, and the same with anomalous phenomena, that if an object can just vanish, or reappear, you know, whether it's a glowing orb, which some of these things are, these glowing spheres, which seem to just disappear, change shape, right? That's anomalous. That's, if it can disappear or it can change shape, then, okay, it's not a Chinese balloon, right? It's, it's not a satellite, you know. So, again, I think people need to understand that the ufology, that really is such a nebulous, vague thing. And there's a reason why people laugh at at you if you say, I saw a UFO. Now, if you could say to them, I saw an anomalous aerial vehicle, they'd probably stop and think, well, what's that? And ask you, why did you say that? You said, well, because it was teleporting, you know? It was teleporting around the sky. At that point, you've got someone's attention, right? In a different way to, I saw a light and I think it was, you know, something. What, what um, What's your take on, uh, on, on kind of intelligent life outside of Earth? So, so you've got, um, you know, a lot more kind of study in terms of uh, how there's been an intersection with that intelligent life and, and uh, human origin and, and the things that we talked about, but where do you come out? Is there, mm-hmm. um, you know, multiple 
uh, colonizations out there uh, of uh, intelligent life and, and uh, it looks like the movies? Is it something else? Like, like wh- when you kind of think about the possibilities, where do you have the highest degree of confidence? I, I would, first of all, I would probably err on the side of what some of the, um, the leading theorists in the field have said, which is they suspect that the majority of truly advanced, you know, far advanced alien civilizations will probably be post-biological, that at some point they will, either they will upload their, their awareness, their consciousness, their intelligence, you know, into these vast silica networks, or that they will go extinct, leaving behind the machines they created, right? Robots, AI, whatever. So you, you've got two different ways in which converges where you end up with AI, okay, and technologies that will be roving space. Also, that if you're, if you're running an advanced SETI program on an alien world and you're more advanced than us, in fact, even at our level, really, you're sending out robots. We're exploring Mars with robots. We're sending out robot probes to look at meteorites and stuff. Right? So you're most likely to encounter a robot right, or an AI, and probably from multiple worlds. I think the, the galaxy is probably full of AI probes from different civilizations. And at this point, the galaxy is old enough that that these AI probes could be on every every single star system of the Milky Way, right? We can start with that. That's a totally reasonable um, prediction because even at sublight speeds, there's been enough billions of years, right, for probes to reach every single star system in the galaxy. Now, if you start with that, that counteracts a lot of the, the kind of arguments that people give you. They say, well, you know, things don't move fast enough to visit us. Ahem, please factor in time. Right? Because time is the fixer of all those problems, right? It doesn't matter how slow it's going if you can give it a couple of billion years to reach, yeah? So I suspect that we're going to mostly be encountering AI out there and that there's probably all kinds of technologies left by past civilizations and current ones. Now, there are likely to be biological intelligences still there as well out there. And will they connect with each other? I think it's very likely because, again, if their probes are bumping up against each other, Right? there's a good chance that these civilizations get to know each other. And if they have technologies like, let's say, near light speed or wormhole travel or um, like the Alcubra drive, this, you know, using warp bubbles where you basically bend space around the craft, you essentially go into time travel. Yeah? So when you get into those kind of technologies, you're not only closing the distances, but you're, in fact, you're sort of time traveling as well. So there's... If they develop those exotic transportation mechanisms, there is no reason why after probes meeting probes that you can't set up a meeting, right? So I think there's a good chance we're going to find, if we get out there and and we contact, or if we are in contact from here, that we'll find there are networks or alliances or trading, you know, all of that. I think that really is out there. Now, it may be in pockets of the galaxy, or it may be the entire galaxy is networked, you know. Obviously, we, we can only speculate you know we can have hints obviously people say that they've had contact experiences and you know and in that information if you take it as being valid often it's described as there's being different kinds of beings that people see now whether those are psychic experiences or some echo from our dna or what they are i don't know for sure but you know if any of them are legitimate they tend to point to there being multiple kinds of intelligences they're interested in in each other and us but again you know i recognize that those for most people are just too speculative but i i do think the contact experiences and what we call abduction are interesting even if you don't accept them as being alien because you've then you've still got to say it why is it that 
say tens or I don't know, maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of people around the world, right, are having experiences where they feel that they're in the presence of an alien intelligence and that it's communicating with them, usually through telepathy or whatever. And that why is that happening to so many people? You know, because if that is not contact with uh, another intelligence, shouldn't we want to understand why, say, some of our greatest minds, like astronauts, you know, people in the military, um, leading scientists, why they would be having that experience? Like, what is going on? Are, they, are, they, are all these people really crazy? Because they seem to go on with their lives, working, you know, producing for the society and being productive citizens. So it's not a mental illness that we would understand them as, right? Because they're t- these are mostly fully functional people. So we should want to know, you know, what's going on here? Let's investigate it. If it's a real psychical contact from another civilization, then, hey, let's try and pick up the phone. And if it's not, shouldn't we be trying to find treatment for these people? Right. So either way, but I, I do think that, you know, that's worth exploring because it's the only indicator we have about what kind of civilizations are out there. Other than that, we have to speculate and say that science predicts mostly AI, but also the possibility of networked connections between civilizations because there's been so much time. And, you know, as long as they've got the, the wormhole tech. Oh, look, just to clarify on wormhole travel, again, most people say that's impossible. Recently, there's been a study done on could you use black holes to travel? And it turns out that as long as a black hole is large enough and slow enough rotating that you can pass through the event horizon fairly safely without being ripped apart. And they suspect that the black hole at the center of of our galaxy, the Sagittarius one, that 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 could be suitable for going through. So where did that go? Maybe that takes us to the Andromeda galaxy or something. We don't know. But, you know, could there be civilizations out there that have have figured that out, that you can use stable black holes for travel and they're able to modify them in some way that they they can pass through them to specific locations or that can engineer these wormholes, these kind of, you know, the Einstein-Rosenberg bridges through space-time, that they can pull two locations together. They've developed the exotic the exotic um, materials that are required to open these. You know, again, we know that in very, you know, speculative theory that these are possible, so let's say another species has a million years more than us or 10 million years more than us and they they invent this then they can be anywhere in the in the galaxy right they can be on our moon they can be you know on the other side of the galaxy they can be anywhere so i do think we've got to remove the artificial limitations of of human level thinking from extraterrestrials because i see it all the time people say oh, well you know we can't do that or oh, we wouldn't be able to get there fast enough you've got to stop thinking like that isn't it? because in a million years we won't have any of the problems that we're thinking about now, right? I, I, uh, I think you got a point, man. You know, it, it really does come down to the, the, the part I like about this entire conversation is uh, you are very self-aware in the idea that um, at the end of the day, uh, we should experiment with everything. We should research everything and mm-hmm. uh, to take, you know, what in your words, radical ideas um, and put them through scientific rigor. Uh, if we come out on the other end and they're disproven, uh, then they were uh, simply incorrect thesis, right? But if we come out the other end and they end up being um, valid with supporting evidence and, and kind of widely accepted, then they were just simply mm-hmm. uh, a new idea that hadn't been realized yet, right? And, and so we, uh, the, the, the human um, race is incentivized to explore all of these radical ideas and then to ensure that we put it through that scientific rigor. Um, and, and so although 
uh, you probably don't get nearly um, as much attention on the work that you're doing uh, as you'd like. You know, I think that um, it's important work and, and uh, there should be many, many more people like you that are not only working on the same mm-hmm. types of uh, problems and thesis, but also should have their own radical ideas um, to go out and to explore. So just I'd add as well quickly as well, keep in mind that um, the TTSA, you know, to the stars with Tom DeLong and these guys from the government that are working together, you know, who are behind all of these big articles, they're basically saying the same sort of thing that I'm saying. Look, they're saying that there is a genuine phenomena, right, behind these craft and objects in our skies that they, they may be extraterrestrial. They're saying they've got material from these that they think is engineered, not on this world, right? They're telling us as well that if you look at Tom Long's books, his um, secret machines books, he claimed that it's likely we were engineered by extraterrestrials, right? All the things that they're saying, which are in the major press, which people are seeing, I'm saying, but the major difference, right, is I'm giving physical evidence. I've got physical debris, which has been well tested, Right, I've got the genetic anomalies again, they've been well explored. Um, so I'm actually the irony is because I'm not famous and because I don't have millions of dollars to get a PR team, right? The people won't know of my work, but I'm actually offering testable right evidence, whereas they're offering quite speculative evidence at this point. You know, we've got pictures of what looks like a stone, and we're getting told that they have these other evidence, yeah, which we haven't seen. But I'm actually saying, well, look, I'm putting it out there. I'm saying, well, look, this is the, you know, I've got another book coming out, but I put it out there already, you know, that uh, these are the anomalies. This is where they are. This is the material. It's testable. It's already been tested. You know, but it's quite strange that, you know, one one is getting the New York Times because of who it is, and the better evidence is virtually unknown because I'm not as famous and I don't have the finances to pay a PR team to put this in the New York Times, basically. For sure. Well, look, and, and I think that, again, it, it comes down to you've got so many people who are all hitting on uh, the same thing or, or around the same thing that, you know, eventually we, we end up making a, uh, a, a breakthrough, um, you know, and, and uh, uh, in my personal opinion, um, you know, what you said earlier just rings so true. There are two existential questions that every single human in their lifetime will ask. The first is, uh, is there life after death or is there some sort of um you know environment after death and the second is are we alone are we the only intelligent life form here or are there others um and and i think that uh the work that you're doing to focus on that ladder um is important and uh, frankly look if you or somebody else uh is able to concretely um establish that there is intelligent life somewhere else outside of earth uh it'll be one of the greatest scientific breakthroughs of our life right And, and so um, it's only uh, mm-hmm. crazy and, and wild um, and, and kind of taboo until it's proven to be true, right? And I think Roger Bannister, yeah. no one broke the four-minute mile. And then once one person did it, everyone did. And uh, it'll take one scientific uh, yeah. um, kind of discovery um, with full you know, uh, documentation and, and kind of passing of the scientific rigor. And all of a sudden, it will be a known fact that, yes, there is other intelligence out there. Uh, we are not alone. Mm-hmm. And that will open up a world of possibilities and, and uh, frankly, capital um, that will be invested to, uh, to go explore and, and, uh, and find out more. So, uh, you know, mm-hmm. keep going. Thank you. Yeah. And, and obviously, anyone who partners with me at this stage, you know, I think they may find their name on one of the biggest discoveries in human history because I've not as yet had anyone be able to explain away the evidence put it that way there's you know if the scientists want to try i'd love to have more scientists look over what i'm saying if they can find the holes great 
right? But if they can't or they validate it, then hey, this is a, a paradigm changing event. For sure. Where can people go find more of your work, um, either the books or, uh, or anything else that, uh, they, that you're working on? Sure. I have a couple of websites, brucefenton.info and ancientnews.net. And I, I will basically you'll find me on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, I'm currently as well, I'm a recurring guest expert speaker on ancient aliens on the history channel that thankfully um, Giorgio kind of likes my work and he's asked that I come on so I'm now recurring on there uh, and I should be at contact in the desert next year 2020 to present there so people and people can contact me you know Twitter is where I'm most active but they, they can they can contact me through my websites Facebook you know I'm quite happy for that got it all right Bruce listen I really appreciate you taking the time we, we recorded for almost two hours so I, I, uh, I know your time is valuable and I, I just appreciate you coming on and kind of talking through a lot of this stuff um, you know there's a lot of folks who, uh, who are interested from hearing from you so uh, thanks so much and uh, as you continue your work we'll have to do this again in the future great thank you very much and i really appreciate you know taking the time and that you took the time to look at some of the, the papers i sent you and everything so i'm really yeah really pleased that you brought me on it's been really good chat thank you hey everyone pop here if you like this episode of off the chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the apple spotify and other podcast charts please do us a favor and rate review and subscribe to review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.